Hi, this is episode 27 of the Theory of the Postdoc Evolution, the podcast from the Postdoctoral Development Center at Queen's University Belfast. It features a panel discussion recorded in June 2023 and chaired by Dr. Ben McAteer, a postdoctoral researcher in the School of Natural and Built Environment. Ben talks to Dr. Bethany Waterhouse-Bradley, a program manager for the Special EU Programs Body, Dr. Claire McCartan, senior researcher in the Northern Health and Social Care Trust, and Dr. Jade Berman, co-steward advisor at the National Trust. My name is Ben, and I probably won't be talking too much today, because I know you've all really joined to hear from three experts, Bethany, Claire, and then Jade, who will be joining us later, to hear about their kind of transition from previously working within academia and doing a PhD and completing that, and then moving beyond academia to work in practice and policy. And within the three panelists today, the kind of general field of, of social sciences and social policy more generally. So kind of for this session, I've written down a lot of different questions, some which will be more kind of individually focused, and then some which I hope can be a bit more kind of across the panel, we can get some insight and feedback. And I have no doubt they have a lot of expertise to share. Um, so to begin, I was going to think about doing individual questions, um, first for Claire, then Bethany, um, and hopefully we can kind of transition smoothly into when Jade joins, hopefully around one o'clock, to have a couple of minutes of questions with her as well. And largely these questions will focus on kind of your career journey and what advice each of the panelists can give to those who are listening today. And once we finish the individual questions, I've created two different themes, which will hopefully carry us through to kind of the majority of the session. The first theme about that kind of transition out of academia, some of the barriers and some of the challenges, but also the opportunities and, and the benefits that that has provided for the, the panelists. And then a second theme about collaboration and impact as well, because I know currently working in the university and in academia, it's certainly a big focus of my work. It's about collaboration with different researchers and beyond academia as well collaboration with those in practice and myself collaboration with communities as well and certainly kind of aligned to that or entwined with it is the idea of, of impact as well and what I'm quite keen to learn about and what I hope will be useful for all of you listening today will be about the differences of how impact is measured from an academia kind of standpoint and also from from the panelists perspectives of those in policy and practice so how is impact understood how is it measured um, and what kind of benefit do you gain from the, the different types of impact that their work is generating and hopefully then that will leave us with maybe 10-15 minutes at the end of the session where we dedicate some time to questions from the audience so feel free obviously to post any questions you have during any any part of this conversation i'll try and get to them when i can but certainly at the end we'll have a good bit of dedicated time just to to go through those so I suppose I should get going with the questions and hand over to the panelists. We'll begin with yourself, Claire, if that's okay. And maybe speak for around 10 minutes or 15, just about your kind of your background, initially from before moving to academia, your PhD itself, then your current work. I suppose my, my first question is really is, what was your kind of academic pathway? So what brought you to the PhD and, and what did the PhD itself involve? My undergrad uh, was in politics um, and then I worked for a non-departmental public body for, um, I don't know, many years, 10 years um, before uh, seeing an opportunity at Queen's, uh, which sort of chimed with my experience. It was around people, young people who were out of education um, and it was one of the very first sort of peer research participatory research approaches. Um, so I joined Queensland in, in 2003 
Uh, and I worked as a research assistant for many, many years. Um, the politics in me say I'm not going to do a PhD. I'm not going to be forced to do a PhD, but uh, eventually I couldn't progress, obviously. And in 2019, I did my PhD by, by published works. So um, I had 10 publications that had a kind of a theme and a, and a journey around power inequality and social justice. And it's around that, you know, unheard, seldom heard voices. Um, so that was a really, I really recommend that approach if you have got some publications under your belt. Um, it took me six weeks to, to submit my PhD. Um, so it was, it was a really, really good way to do it. And I'm so glad that my, my line manager and supervisor encouraged me to do that because I hadn't really taken it seriously. And then my progression to senior research fellow was, was very quick after that. Um, but in terms of, of, turning away from I mean I was in the same school the whole the whole time was at Queen's uh, and as I said a really great line manager but just I was turned 50 last year and uh, that crisis of um, of opportunity and and people will know if there are senior research fellow there are very few opportunities and the only options that were being given to me at that time were to, to, to go down a grade so I just thought I'm going to have to be brave um, and and look beyond. Um, so I'm I just I feel really really lucky that the role I've got now I'm, I'm based within the Northern Health and Social Care Trust, but it's a regional role. So I'm embedded within. There's a there's a mental health research centre um, within the Northern Health and Social Care Trust, and there's a few ex Queens folk <laughs> that have migrated that way. So there is a very strong research. Um, background to the unit um, it is very much trying to support psychological approaches within in the trust but um, because I've come from the sort of social work paradigm that sort of bringing a, a different lens and sort of extending the work so my particular role is, is, is a senior research role it's like it's a strategic role but there's there's also the opportunity I, st I still have PhD students I have um, Declan psych students at Queen's so that academic um, opportunity and training and education it has been maintained. Um, but I'm working for the Regional Trauma Network, which is it's a result of a ministerial directive, um, uh, which is attempting to address the needs of victims and survivors of the troubles um, of Northern Ireland. So um, I'm working across the five health and social care trusts and we're delivering a, a very specialist psychological service uh, for victims and survivors in very strong partnership with six victim and survivor organisations. So it's a, very, it's a bit of a new um, direction for the health service. Um, it's directed by the Department of Health and the Executive Office. Um, so it's a very unique partnership where they're, they're sort of delivering, you know, tier one to tier five um, services, holistic services. But also consider, you know, people's social and economic needs, um, their their trauma needs, family focused practice. So it's 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 a lovely kind of um, capture of of all the things that are important to me in terms of co production, in terms of deprivation, um, and in terms of 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 of, of treatment. Um, so that is led in terms of um, it's led by a, a psychiatrist who also works half time at Queens. So I'm still feel quite embedded within within the academic culture.
Brilliant there, thank you very much. And just to backtrack a little bit before asking a few more questions about your, your kind of current work, I know you mentioned at the start about a PhD by Published Works, is it called? Um, which is something I'd roughly heard of before but wasn't entirely sure. And I don't know, maybe the audience that aren't entirely, maybe some of them are working on that, but just could you explain the kind of okay. focus on papers you are either have written or currently working and putting them together? Okay. Well, I think it varies very much. I think the standard um, fare for a, for a published works PhD is around four or five publications. And you need to demonstrate, you know, you, you don't have to be first author in all of them, but you need to demonstrate a substantial contribution to the work. Um, they need to be related. They need to tell a narrative. So you have the opportunity to do a critical analysis of, of, of what you've done. Um, so there's probably around 10,000 words you need to write to top and tail it. Um, I felt I needed to prove myself, which is why I, I wanted 10. Um, so, but it did, it, it, well, there was a very cohesive journey. And in terms of, it's a much cheaper way to do it as well. And, and the school paid for it for me. And then in terms of examination, you have to have two external examiners. So obviously nobody. Um, and then it was it was easy. But I mean, it was I, I got it as it stood because it had been through the peer review process. So the papers were of a, of a good standard. That So it really was good <laughs> for me. Yeah, it was interesting because when I was doing a PhD, I finished a few years ago, and it wasn't really necessarily, it wasn't written in stone that I'd have to have published prior to the Viva. I know in, in some cases that's different, and certainly in some European PhD systems it's different, but I was certainly always encouraged to, and, and just as you said there as well, it certainly helped when you have papers that have been already peer-reviewed and there's been given expert feedback and it's been approved for publication, and yeah, I guess not really a question, more of a statement, but Certainly for current PhD students, it's certainly difficult to, to factor time into writing papers and to getting through the publication process, but it certainly does help when it comes to the, the defense and the viva that you can already showcase a lot of your work has been viewed externally and, and shown to be of good quality. So, but yeah, I'm sure you're in agreement with that. I suppose one of the difficulties whenever your contract research staff is carving out your, your, your niche and, and your specialism because you can be pulled from pillar to post. So I was lucky that was I was able to have a you know there was a theme to, to my work over over the years. Brilliant, thank you. And the other question, just uh, tracking back a little bit, kind of talked about how you're well supported when you decided you would like to look for work outside of academia. And just if if you could explain that in a bit of detail, were you shown good options and and support it in your your choice it to was, then leave? It was all it was all down to my line manager who is um, anyone who, who works with them would, would, would agree. He's, he's, a, he's a wonderful individual and very supportive, very well connected and, um, you know, understood the, 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 the pull, pull, pull push factors for me. So, but in terms of, of Queen's um, providing support, no, I don't, I don't think they were very helpful at all. Yeah, well, that's an interesting thing to, to ask about and to hear, because <clears throat> again, it's the reality of, of myself working in Queen's and others who are listening who are in Queen's and other universities as well, to know about that and to know, yeah, is it well supported or as you've mentioned, it's maybe just down to an individual supervisor or line manager that can provide that support. So, but I think it's a good conversation, a good kind of perspective to know for 
current PhD students and postdocs that you might have to do a lot of the work yourself. And maybe that's quite telling as well about your desire and it kind of strengthens your desire to, to move on. And the final question is going to ask about your kind of well, transition in some ways about previous work within the university. Obviously, you talked about the publications. And is that still part of your research now that you would publish papers and you would still go through that kind of process? Yeah, um, I still be working very closely with with colleagues at Queen's and I I think we've published six papers this year. So I was involved in quite a large prevalence mental health study. So there's still quite a lot of work out of that. But yeah, I'm still continuing to work with the same people. And, you know, we're we're working on new projects together. In terms of my role as well, I'm working with around... I don't know, 150 people trying to build research capacity. So a lot of that is is trying to to write with them and to get their work published. A lot of them are, are psychologists within the health service who have research experience. They're delivering really high quality work, but they're not they're not writing it, writing it up. So I'm in the process of of doing that with I think there's seven clinicians I'm working with at the minute to write up help them write up their work and then building that research capacity within the voluntary sector because again they don't have the same sort of discipline around research so I've just been writing a paper this morning about we're co-producing our research strategy so I've written that up as a as a as a journal article because I think we need to get we need to get the the message and and share the information with with the with the academic community as well as um, the community and voluntary sector so yes it's it's very much very similar to what I was doing, but it's in a in a secure environment, as you know, with it with a um a permanent post, which is really nice. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thanks again, Claire. And I'm kind of specifically interested in those points you mentioned about working with others in practice who don't have the time or capacity to publish work. So we'll save some questions I have around that because I would like to talk across the panel a little bit later about how you communicate your kind of current research and work with others to communicate that both in regards to papers and, and beyond that as well. But thanks again, Claire, for your introduction. So Bethany, thanks again for taking the time to join. Um, so I guess similar kind of question to kick things off, if you wouldn't mind maybe giving a, a brief kind of overview of your, your work moving into academia and, and what your your research involved at that time. And then of course, as well, your, your current work and who you work with and what the kind of key objectives and, and factors are that you currently work on. Um, yeah, so I, my first degree was in sociology and it was an American degree, so it was human services, which is effectively like a voluntary sector management. Um, and I was working, kind of doing frontline service work as a um, key worker with um, various groups of people. And I really loved that work, but I got to a point when I was starting, particularly when I moved to Belfast and I was working in Belfast where you kind of realized your hands were tied quite a lot by policy and so I became quite interested in policy and um, and how that shaped the the work that I was doing and so I did a degree in social policy and while I was there and um, I think because I was a mature student and I already had a had already done a, an undergrad um I was asked to stay on and and I was encouraged to apply for a PhD and then I got a scholarship to do a PhD so I I did my PhD on um like looking at the way the volunteering community sector represents the perspectives of of underrepresented groups in policy decisions and I, I focused specifically on migrants and asylum seekers um 
so, uh, so that was my PhD and then kind of went straight out of academia right after um, my PhD and went straight into policy work. And I worked for the Strategic Migration Partnership. And that was really accidental because it just happened that they set this up for the first time ever. And it was quite an exciting project. And so I wanted to kind of give it a go, even though I, I was keen to stay in academia. I, it just seemed like a really good opportunity. So, um, so I did that, but really missed research a lot. I didn't do very much research at all in my work there. And I felt quite, um, the pace really felt like I had slowed down significantly, like work, you know, I was being given two weeks to do a piece of work that was taking me maybe a day to do or two days to do. And I just felt like the pace of work and the level of interest that I had in the work was really slow compared to academic work. So I went back and did, um, I got a job as a postdoc um, because postdoctoral jobs in social sciences can be really difficult because a lot of social science funding is much smaller. So the PIs tend to do the research themselves and get their time funded rather than, so I found it really difficult to find postdoc work within social policy. Um, I, I started widening my search out to, to England but ultimately I had small children and I couldn't really try. I didn't want to travel. I didn't want to move my family. So, um, and that was pre COVID. So hybrid working wasn't really as much of a thing. Um, so I ended up, I ended up in the school of psychology because I, just because I saw a really interesting project and it was very much, and it, it was luck really that I ended up with someone that was based in the school of psychology, but ultimately was a kind of medical sociologist and really favored social science uh, methodological approaches to psychology approaches. So, um, so I ended up there and through that got involved as a, um, I, I did a postdoc there and then I did another, a second postdoc within psychology as well, um, but more in a project coordinator role of a number of different related projects that were under the same theme. So that was the first place that I was actually managing other researchers and other, other postdocs as well. Um, and that was where I would say I got most of my academic experience. Um, just to kind of mirror what Claire's saying a little bit about line manager, there was a huge amount of like the difference between your line manager and whether they take on a mentorship role, I think is pretty massive in terms of your direction and how your career path goes, because there was a map while I had a good relationship with my line manager, when I moved to the project coordinator role, it was there was much more mentorship involved in that, and um, and that really shifted and changed. And I, my CV kind of quadrupled in that eighteen months because I had someone that was constantly looking out for how I could be developing my CV and thinking about that in a strategic way. Um, I think that's really important and. And navigating the academic system if you don't have people that understand academia and you don't understand it yourself there's so many rules and unspoken structures and maybe it's because I'm a researcher of institutions that I tend to think that but I think institutionally you really need someone to guide you through it so if you have a line manager that's mentoring you it's a it's just a massive difference um so through that I applied for a lectureship opened up in social policy and I went back into social policy um and I worked as a lecturer in social policy for four and a half years. And um, through that time became the course director um, of the health and social care policy degree. 
Um, and we'll discuss later kind of reasons for leaving academia, so we won't get into it, but I just felt really like I was not doing any of the work that I had. You know, as a postdoctoral researcher, I really pined for doing my own research, research on things that I was really interested in. And um, as a lecturer, I just pined for research. <laughs> Generally, like I, I miss the days when I actually could spend all my time doing research, um, even if it was someone else's. So, uh, so I left, for various reasons, I left academia to take this role then in the um, special EU programs body. And that's where I am now. I'm a, I'm the program at one of the program managers for Peace Plus, although I've just shifted into a slightly different role, but same at the same kind of level. So, so that's where I am now. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much, Bethany, for, for explaining all of that. Um, and also really interesting as well, um, a kind of journey that you've been on and, and the reasons behind certain shifts and, and times to do. And again, as you mentioned, aligning with what Claire had mentioned about the need for a line manager to be more than just a manager, but to be a mentor as well. So certainly I find that of interest because thankfully I'm in a position where I would say I'm similarly supported by a, a line manager. So I'm very aware and he's very, or he's educated me a lot about the kind of pitfalls of remaining in academia and not necessarily just having a lectureship as the, the end points for, for me. I'm currently a research fellow. So mm. logical when I first kind of moved in that it would just be progressed to a tenure position, but as you said, I really enjoy research, maybe more than anything else. So wouldn't necessarily be the, the most um, appropriate thing for me to do if the opportunity came up in the first place, obviously. Um, so it's very interesting to hear that. And again, I'm sure a lot of uh, fellow PhDs and postdocs listening will maybe be in that position as well, where they, they really enjoy research more than anything. So it doesn't necessarily mean you, you have to shoehorn your, your career into an academic position where research might only be a, a fraction of the, the work that you do. So one question I kind of had, um, kind of alluded to at the beginning of your, what you mentioned there about your initial kind of work, and when I was reading your bio beforehand as well, talked about how you worked a lot with individual kind of groups or communities, and quite often yeah. working on provision support as well. Yeah. I was wondering in some way did that kind of frame your perception of what research is, so kind of oh, research? Absolutely, yeah. No, it was because to me, research was just a way of, of, I mean, and Claire's already touched on this, it was a way of, of trying to create space for stories and, and, and experiences to be, to be recognized within systems that really weren't recognizing them. Because one of the things that I always, always slightly like embarrassed to admit this, but when I moved here, I'm American, and when I moved here 20 years ago, and I started studying social policy, and they were talking about new labor, because I was coming from the United States, I was like, New Labour was this like mind-blowing socialist project to me. <laughs> now I like, you know, without getting being political, I don't think that any longer. Um, but when I read the policies, I was like, this is magic. Imagine these being the policies that we're gonna we're gonna put out into the world. Um, and the idea even of having social policy, because in America, public policy is a very corporate kind of discipline and it's very kind of almost like business studies. So I was really excited by that. And then I started, and then I was working with people and watching them navigate those policies and just realizing that that's nothing like how they're experiencing those policies. That's nothing like how they're experiencing those environments and those benefits. And um, and so, so to me, research was about making sure that the reality of 
of those experiences was centered. Um, you know, what we were we did a when we were doing a review, an evaluation of of a specific medical intervention, I, I always wanted to take a realist approach to that so that you were saying like, who is this working for in what situation and why? Um, rather than just saying, yes, 60% of people had a good experience with this. And so therefore we're now gonna roll this out at scale. But those 40% people, percent of people for whom it didn't work, the consequences were absolutely and completely devastating. So yes, those numbers are smaller, but actually the stories behind those numbers are really, really um, important and maybe even more important than the majority because maybe the majority of those people would have been just fine anyway. Um, so yeah, so I do, I, that was always at the center of how I designed research and how I, um, how I chose the frameworks and the methodology. That's fascinating. Thank you, Bethany. And it certainly has emerged with my kind of perceptions of the role of social science, um, really just basic questions of what research is for and who it benefits and so on. So it's very interesting to hear you kind of clarify that. And I'm sure many of the audience based in social science backgrounds will, will chime with that kind of rationale as well. And the final kind of question I had, I know you just mentioned you maybe moved on from Peace Plus, but I was going to ask you ask about Peace Plus and not necessarily ask for a full overview of what it involves, but just in general, that kind of body or a research kind of funding body as well, if you could explain how it works and how kind of grant applications are considered and what you kind of see as being not an ideal research project, but the, the kind of research that you think should be funded and, and given um, most kind of prominence to. Yeah, um, so I'm, I am still on Peace Plus, but my I was kind of a generic Peace Plus development manager before, whereas now my role is much more in, um, now that the program is developed, I'm moving on to kind of the next phase of that. And um, But ultimately, it's been really, it's been really, really interesting moving to this side of the table and um, seeing how funders are thinking through decisions. And, um, uh, and I've been really surprised at how the experience of applying for funding and writing grant application, writing projects has helped me develop. You know, one of the things I'm responsible for at the moment is designing the assessment process. So anybody that applies to Peace Plus, um, I, I'm in charge of deciding how that's gonna be, whether or not that gets funded, so sorry. Um, but, the, but just kind of designing the assessment process with writing a grant application in mind and like how, when I'm thinking about all these different pieces we need to consider um consider how that's going to impact um on the end so i think the biggest bit of advice i would be giving people um one is you know peace plus is a very particular pot of money it's a it's a very has a very specific purpose and we as a managing authority are very bound to that purpose um and it needs to come through in everything that we do so um and it's the first time, particularly for people that used to apply for interreg funding, so that like interregional funding, because um, I'm I have responsibility for I had responsibility for the kind of calls around the environment and a lot of the projects that would have been interreg before. I can see the panic on the faces of potential applicants about well, how am I supposed to demonstrate peace, a contribution to peace? I'm doing a biodiversity and resilience project. Like what? How can you ask me to to contribute to peace. And what I've been saying to people is, you know, normalizing cross-border working on things that in a 
place that is not a post-conflict country, they would have been working across the border very effectively and without any political controversy. That normalization of working together on environmental impact is a contribution to peace. It is a contribution to, to a post-conflict society. Um, it's just about saying that. It's about saying the right language and framing. Um, so often the work that we're doing is contributing to peace and reconciliation in that we are saying these are the issues that are affecting us as an island society, whether we identify as British or Irish, our waters are really polluted. And those water catchments uh, in the North are flowing down into the South and affecting the drinking water there. So we have to be able to work between these jurisdictions and normalizing that means working towards a more peaceful society. So um, there's an enormous amount of guidance, read it read it over and over again and use the language of that guidance, but don't just feed the guidance back to us because I have been really shouting in the ears of all the assessors to say, it's not enough to copy and paste your contribution to sustainable development goals. I wanna know exactly what, you know, if you tell me you're gonna incorporate the circular economy into your procurement process, I wanna know that you have looked around and seen what the circular economy looks like in your area. I want to know that um, when you say you're going to, you know, tr treat men and women equally or single parents equally, that you have thought about whether or not for your events you provide childcare. You know, so it's about saying, it's about going beyond oftentimes because I, I read a lot of previous applications in order to design the assessment program and a lot of the things that you read are people kind of just parroting back the guidance without applying it um you know if we ask you what is the need behind your project well we already know that young people and mental health is a huge problem in northern ireland that's why it's a priority for the program why is your project meeting that need better than anyone else? Why is there a need for exactly what you do in the way that you do it? Um, so I think that kind of uh, don't expect us to know why your product is important um, and, and don't copy and paste different parts of your own thing over and over again, because we'll just get bored. <laughs> and because it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, you've got a limited opportunity to tell us this amazing thing that you're going to do in three years. So you take every word of it and tell us the detail of what you're going to do. Um, so yeah, those would be my big, I know that's kind of a little bit high level and generic, but, um, but yeah, definitely. And really think about your contribution to the themes of the program and the themes of the program are addressing inequalities between different regions that different regions within um, the program area are, you know, are progressing economically and socially at a faster rate than others, and that's not right. So what are you doing about that, and how are you helping towards it? Don't think about peace in this really, like, we have 50% of Catholic people and 50% Protestant people, and we put them in a room together, and now they're friends. Like, that's not what peace means anymore. Like, that, like think beyond that. Excellent. Thanks so much, Bethany. And I know you mentioned this high level kind of criteria, but so the, the basis of all research from PhD level beyond that. So yeah, thanks so much for that overview. And I think also for 
myself as a postdoc and others listening that as a PhD, I probably didn't think too much about applying for grant applications or working in teams that would, would apply for funding for future research. But thinking back, I probably should have thought more about it. I think I relied a bit too much on a very supportive line manager and other researchers that were also applying for things. Um, but it's really interesting. I think if I could th if I could go back to things as a PhD, what do I want to work in or what do I want my research to focus on? And you had to look at the, the bodies who would award grants and how they work and the categories and criteria they work to. And as you said, going right down to the, not just replicating things in a, an information kind of side of things, but also highlighting what your research will do in a, a practical and theoretical level. So thank you so much for that, it was brilliant. And I'll sort of segue into to GIT if that's okay. And I think there's some maybe useful things, especially around the kind of environmental side of things there and how peace isn't just necessarily focused on, well, I was gonna say societal issues, but it is societal issues, but how that relates to environmental aspects as well, which I know, Jade, you've, you've worked on a lot. So I've, well, I suppose I've been very lucky to meet Jade a few times previously in different types of research. And she's more focused on the kind of side of things I would look into in terms of environmental issues and sustainability. But I suppose, Jade, if you wouldn't mind giving an overview of how you came from, not necessarily a social science background, more biological, and then how you've moved into working in the, the policy arena that still focuses heavily on kind of societal issues as well. Yeah, no problem. So hello, everyone. I am a marine biologist that has somehow snuck in here to talk to you about policy. So what I would say their key message, number one, is it's OK to change fields. It's OK to be interdisciplinary. In fact, it's a really good thing. So uh, my background is I'm an expert on sponges and I love them, but I'm not going to talk to you about them today, apart from sort of in a segue. So uh, I went to university over in England. You can hear from my voice, I'm from over in that direction. Um, I did a master's up in Scotland. Um, I've done various uh, bits and bobs throughout that time. I ended up doing a PhD out in New Zealand. So uh, a completely different sort of setup. It was great to get a scholarship to go and do that, sort of have a sort of different way of working. But one of the things which I think is useful, whatever your PhD is in, is that um, while doing my PhD, I was also I was running a charity on the side. It doesn't have to be a charity. It could be something else. But it is about that kind of ability to not just get sort of it is important to do pure research, but it's also good to see practically how that's applied, how it connects to people, how you can kind of use it to make a difference or, or you know, change things. So I found that sort of while I was in New Zealand, I was a full time PhD student. But on the side, I was running a charity. Uh, in my free time and sort of working volunteers, bringing in grants for that. So you kind of learn the grant making side by by practice, because you have to really to be able to do that. And then after the PhD, I mean, there's various other bits, but I won't go into them, but I moved to Northern Ireland to take up a job with um, Ulster Wildlife. So as a marine manager there. And then I was actually doing research on the side. So I went from sort of doing the research during the PhD and sort of publishing and then swipping it over. I became sort of full time working for a charity as their living seas manager. But then on the side, I was also applying for research grants to work on some of the sponge work I've been doing previously to go back to the Antarctic. So that was Leverhulme funded. I know they also do social science type funding as well. So it's just one of those things that people think that you have to kind of like you know stay in one area you can actually be doing something and do something else on the side you don't have to box yourself in so 
that Leader Hume funding allowed me and I worked with Bristol University and the Ulster Museum actually to sort of carry out that research trip. And then I was kind of writing that up on the side as such of the main job. So that's kind of message one, I guess you can, you don't have to sort of be doing one thing. And then so at the moment, I'm kind of still in that marine sphere there. But I think it's important that you can actually move into other spheres as well. So um, one of the jobs that I was doing after that was at Climate and I. So that was actually proving almost that you don't have to just be sort of marine scientists. You can use those kind of skills to look through that lens and sort of um, work on climate policy as well. So I was advising government there on um, adaptation and other organisations. So I actually then got a bit of a better view about what councils can and can't do and what they want to do and um, the housing executive. It's a whole range of things, but it was almost like it was really, really useful to kind of get that picture of adaptation across a range of fields, but also look at it with my environmental, what, what I perceive as an environmental lens, which is looking more at the biodiversity side, but recognising other people's lenses are different when you say environment to them. They might be thinking about the kind of urban environment they live in. They might think of environmental as kind of a tick list of things they have to do as a business. Uh, they might be thinking of environment as the social environment that they're in and, or air quality. So it's that kind of broadening that's really useful, I think, as well. And then um, I now work as a coastal advisor for National Trust. So I'm really enjoying that at the minute because I get to use the climate knowledge uh, that I sort of gained and shared while I was working over at Climate and I with the sort of marine background to pull that together. Um, but it is vital to have people from a range of backgrounds in there. It's not about being a marine biologist. It's a lot about working with people. It's a lot about sort of thinking, okay, what research is needed, both on a social sense, environmental sense, economic sense, you know, and there's a lot of geology and sort of other sides of that too. So, so it's really diverse. So I'm saying that for me, I mean, I did work in academia before my PhD and during PhD and post, but I have found that it's almost working alongside academia has been quite good for me as well and bringing others in and working with them so yeah great thanks a lot Jade. yeah really interesting point around that kind of the need maybe not need but certainly in, in your case the successes of being diverse and being open to to different feelings and then moving your way throughout that and as you mentioned then you can carry on the kind of knowledge and expertise you generate and and one feeling with the research side of things then into the, the practical work that you do as well it's very interesting to hear that and one thing I had in mind, knowing that you've, as you mentioned, you worked in Ulster Wildlife and currently in, in the National Trust. So I guess kind of uh, and beyond that as well, different types of non-governmental organisations. I'm sure it's of interest to some of those in the audience as well, To if you could explain how those kind of, or how you kind of work within NGOs and yeah. what that involves and how that maybe is different to working for a, a public body, for instance, or within research as well in academia. Yeah, yeah. So I guess... So, I mean, the NGO sector generally is not necessarily well-funded, so it's a very different setup. I'm not, I'm not here to plead for funding right now. That was not my plan coming on this call. But yeah, it's kind of like there are advantages and disadvantages to both. And there's not always permanent jobs, but when they come up, they also can be sort of susceptible to government funding shifts as well. So I know there's a lot of NGOs across multiple sectors right now who are dealing with the budget cuts of government um because because there's that shift so I won't go into that but you know there are they are quite often hit by that because they have less um sort of residual space for that side of things so the, the positives of working for NGOs are well I'm taking NGOs generally I mean I've worked for a few and there's things like 
you do get to sort of lead on what you're doing. You do get to feel as well that you're making a difference, which I really appreciate. Um, I moved from doing more sort of the practical stuff to doing policy influence. And I think when you see that people click <laughs> and, and when lines that you've hoped to go through have actually made it into legislation, that's a really good feeling. You can't promise how it's going to get implemented at the other end, but you know, that's really useful. So I kind of really enjoy that side of things, both, you know, at a national government level, a local government as well, when you're influencing their policy or a business, for example. And then, yeah, it's kind of, it can go right the way down to, you know, uh, currently I work a lot on coastal adaptation. That means I'm looking at how erosion and sea level rise, and I might be talking to a football club whose pitch is on the shore there, but they'll bring the politicians down to talk to you. So I think that kind of ability to basically be a generalist as well and sort of you have your specialisms, but you can actually one minute you're talking to a football team about how their pitch can not be flooded so much and thinking about timing of the match around tides and talking to the council about moving. Next minute you're off somewhere else talking to a bird observatory about how they can sort of manage the species that are there you know it, it's very varied um it can be a you know initially it can, might be hard to try and get into the ngo sector but there are paid internships i would thoroughly recommend if you're thinking of working in the ngo sector um and you're doing a phd or masters look and see if you can do one of the placements on the side so it counts towards your degree that's a great way of getting in and potentially getting a job there's been quite a few master students who we've taken as placements and then you know, taken on as actually employees. So that does happen. Um, I'd also one sort of placements on that side. Another way is, um, and you might think, you know, is thinking about boards or advisory groups as well. So it, boards and advisory groups right now, they are calling out to be more, you know, getting a, a difference of opinion. And as masters and PhD students, you know, you have knowledge, you have perceptions and you have views that are valid. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of NGOs and others as well who would really appreciate having you on their, their boards or their advisory groups. So do do think about that because you'll have, you know, you'll have be right up to date with sort of like having the time to do research in your area and that knowledge, which would be useful to be shared as well, as well as then sort of seeing other people's perspectives and seeing how that functions. So that's quite good in terms of that side of things, too. Hopefully that answers the question. I forgot what it was, but yeah, it got gone oh, off on a tangent. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's exactly what I was after. So thanks for that, Jude. Um, and there's a question which I think kind of aligns roughly with your, what you were talking about, specifically in regard to kind of policy or influencing policy, for instance. It's kind of asking, asking about advice from not just yourself, Jude, but Bethany and Claire as well, if you have any input on how from a PhD or an academic background, you could give any guidance on how you can kind of transition into that sphere where you could influence policy or research could influence it but I think that's kind of what it's asking so I don't know Jade I guess you just spoke about that so yeah yeah I guess um so I did transition into policy because I was a researcher I would say that getting that opportunity to if, if you have experience makes a big difference if you I'm going to be honest if you come and apply for a job with me and you've only got your PhD and you might have loads of papers if you haven't got experience of at least showing whether as a volunteer or as a placement or, you know, you've done a job on the side, it doesn't necessarily have to be in the specific area of policy where I'm focused. For some people, it might be that you've, um, you know, you, you've gained experience in another area as well and you can demonstrate you've gained the skills as such. 
it's not that anyone expects you to be already at that level. There are also um, year-long kind of uh, traineeships as well to transfer over. So think about those. Quite often, there are jobs that come up due to the way funding is uh, kind of around January time, like there's three months sort of like blocks of time where we, we need to get someone in and they need to be done by the end of March. And we do some of those part time. We've actually taken on quite a few people with less experience at that point because we need someone in who's going to sit and do it quickly and do it, you know, well. Um, so they're a great opportunity across the board, even though it's not the best way of organising, you know, uh, but but there is that opportunity to get in. So I would say in terms of moving sideways, you know, also just contact us and ask, because quite often we can line something up and work around your part time jobs, work around your studies, because we, um, sometimes we can offer money if it's through an internship and it's more specific but sometimes NGOs haven't got any spare money but want you to join in so I'm going to stop talking now. <laughs> Claire if you'd like go ahead sorry. I was just going to say you know do try and shape your work if you can to to strategy and policy and then you become relevant Um, a lot of the stuff that I had done before um, I left Queen's was informing the mental health strategy and that work has followed me through into my new posts and I'm, I'm providing a lot of support to the, the department in terms of the, the delivery and the action planning. So you, the, you, it's a small place. People get to know you, get to know your work, uh, and then they, they start to, to, to call on you. Now, it's not We're not talking big money here, but it does it does feel like you're making a difference if, if you can see that your work has directly informed policy and practice. And I think certainly within the health service, I think people are, are really recognising um, the value of research. And I know certainly with the work we've been doing with the department, they don't have that capacity uh, to deliver the, the kind of stuff that the that, that academics can. So um, you could be providing a service, uh, getting known and, and, and really making a difference to policy. Thanks for that insight. Uh, Claire, Bethany, I don't know if you have anything to add on that. Yeah, I was just going to say um, two things. First of all, one, one of the things that I did as a kind of a double win thing, if you're doing work directly with um, participants and you need to get participants to um, take part in your research, one of the things that I used to offer was volunteer hours. Uh, in kind of return as an acknowledgement of the time because a lot of volunteers I worked I did a lot of research with volunteering community sector organizations where they were so overstretched already that giving me two hours of time for an interview was a really big sacrifice for them and so what I would often do was offer to give them their time back like I, do you have a job that would take about two hours that I could do for you something that you need written up something um but in doing that also for myself, I gained experience and, and um, kind of some information about that organization that I was able to then, you know, glean from as well. So that's one thing to keep in mind. Um, the other thing I would say, and please don't take this as a comment on my feelings about it, because I have a real problem with casualization of the workforce generally, but um, I was really afraid of taking agency work. But increasingly, public sector organizations are using agencies to hire quickly at those times when you need they need something done. And um, agency work is a good way of if you're trying to feel feel out what you're doing. I mean, that's how I ended up in SEPB was through through an agency, and um, and the, and you do kind of get a sense of an organization. Then, and my experience was that the the, the 
person, my contact at the agency was able to say to me, I've placed X amount of people at this place. Four of them have been offered permanent roles eventually. And, you know, so, so you get us, they have a good sense of what the organizations are like. So you can be a bit choosy. Um, so if it is something that you're trying to feel out and um, the public sector is intimidating to you, you know, that might be a way of, of having a peek uh, without too much of a commitment. And if you're already stuck in that horrible place of insecurity as a postdoc anyway, um, it's insecurity in another place for a little while. Great, thanks so much, Bethany. Really interesting to have that kind of insight as well. And certainly what you mentioned earlier about like getting people involved and offering kind of an incentive I always find interesting in, in research. I guess myself focus on kind of participatory research and have an interest in that as well. But I can certainly see the benefit of that from someone being really motivated to be involved when they know they themselves will get some kind of output and benefit from it and how that can really broaden the kind of impact and the the value, I guess, of your, your wider research as well. So thanks so much for those kind of introductions to yourselves and a lot of great detail about your background and transitions as well. And suppose now yeah, it's going to work through, through, work through two different themes, some things we've maybe already covered, so I guess we can we can skip through them. Um, but certainly one theme I wanted to talk about was that transition out of academia into your current work. And I know it's not always a very clear-cut moment. There isn't just one day where you decide that's it and the next day you end up working in a a different job I know there's a lot more to that and I suppose that's what is of interest to, to myself and others listening as well about what the kind of key challenges were that maybe you faced or was it difficult was it easy to to find work outside of academia and certainly one of the key things because maybe you've, you've all covered those kind of things already one thing I'd like to ask about is about kind of uh, personal kind of decisions that influence desires to to leave academia. So um, Bethany, I know you mentioned earlier you had a young family. At one point that was an influence in your decision. And I know myself as well, it's often a factor I have in my mind about ensuring that I have more of a secure position. So just wondering, I suppose, Bethany, on that note, if when you're dealing with that kind of conundrum in some ways, and now your current work is more adaptable to your, your situation, you do see the benefit of, of leaving academia to support your kind of family background? Um, yeah, it's really interesting, actually, because in a lot of ways, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to stay in academia was because of my family, um, because I, I really what you know, I'm, a, I'm a real like American woman of the 80s who was told I could have it all and do it all. And, and I was like, I can be a great mom and have a really high powered career. No, that's no problem. And, um, and to me, academia was a way to do that because I felt like I would have control over my schedule my the, you know I, I could decide that I wanted to work from seven to three so that I could pick the kids up from school because I was in charge really of when I worked um, and that level of agency was really important to me um, what I what turned out to be the reality of that was that I didn't have working hours which meant that I was always working and and um, that that agency turned very much into a bit of an albatross for me where I just was always if I wasn't working I was feeling guilty about it because it was impossible for me to actually um complete the work that was allocated to me in the time that I was given to do it um and that particularly became the case when I took on an administrative well when I was given without any choice administrative role um and, and that administrative role took over completely. So I, I ended up using all of my family time to do my research so that I could um, stay afloat. 
Um, so, 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 so in some ways that flexibility really just became a complete burden because I was always working and I was always on, um, which I think anyone that's done a PhD can relate to because you can't turn it off. Um, and it's always in your head all the time. You don't really get a vacation from it. Um, my job now, I was worried about like coming into the office, but actually I have hybrid working. So I work in the office. I have flexible working. So as long as I'm working between the hours of eight and six, I can work flexibly within that. Um, I work from home two days a week and I get to choose the days of the week that I work from home. Um, and I actually feel like I have a lot more control over my working life now than I ever did. And um, so it was an adjustment for my kids to get used to the fact that there would be days that I was going to be home at five for dinner instead and of having me home when they get home from school, like they've been used to over the years, but they very quickly realized that they have a different mother now who is much more present when she is home because that was my experience in academia. I was home, but I wasn't, um, I wasn't present. And I, I always remember there was a big rest deadline and I was having dinner with a friend and I kept getting phone calls and texts. And, um, and I said, sorry, I have a spreadsheet emergency and jumped up from this dinner with friends to go upstairs and fix mistakes on a spreadsheet for a grant application that was due on the Monday. And when I came downstairs, they were all still laughing a half an hour later about my spreadsheet emergency. Um, in this, this kind of sense of urgency, I think that happens when you don't have working hours that, um, that you kind of can't get over. And a lot of us are drawn to academia because we are you know, so dedicated to what we do and so passionate about what we do, I think it's easy for it to take over. And if you have parameters, firm parameters on your work, there's something actually that can be quite freeing about that if you have that type of personality. So that was my my experience was that I, I had more freedom and flexibility once I um, left that environment. Great, thanks, Bethany. Because you certainly, you mentioned about the PhD, certainly felt similar kind of position that you can't really switch off from it, or you might want to be. It's very difficult to do so because it's always constantly in your mind, I suppose. Um, but it's great to see that that transition into a work outside of academia, that work-life balance is more well enjoyable first and foremost, and it is feasible and it is possible to to get into that kind of situation. I don't know if, if Claire or Gia, do you want to add anything in terms of work-life balance in regard to your current work in comparison to how it was beforehand? I can add a bit in there so for me um when I moved I moved out of academia because I was seeing my friends who'd moved into kind of postdocs and they were like one year postdocs and it all sounds very exotic when you're one year here one year over there and you just spend the whole time writing your grant for your next one and I was like you know what I don't want that I've enjoyed being able to do that if I can do a bit of research on the side and do a day job that that's a good thing and um I did notice in the chat that you're looking the um Daniel was looking for like 25k roles when I moved here 10 years ago straight after the PhD I got a the manager role that I got was 26 27k then so the NGO sector does pay it just depends on what job you've got and it's about getting that experience beforehand the other thing about work-life balance is I work four days a week and I choose to do that there is plenty of work I could fill my life with it uh, I do do I want to have time to do those bits that I want to do on the side both my family and also it doesn't have to be family it's also you know running I have another charity the um, Our World Underwater Society that is an expanding bubble of stuff that takes up time so I make that choice to work four days a week as opposed to five so I have time to fit around those other things and not 
not have it crazy all the time. I mean, there are, you know, but it's about it being like that and not just all, which, you know, you don't want those seven cats with PhD dumb and sort of craziness going on. So if that's helpful at all, yeah. I'll just maybe add that, you know, with when I was at Queen's, you, you never wanted to say no to anybody because you never knew when your next contract was was going to be up. So, you you know, you're always willing to please. And I, I do work. I work two long hours, but that's my my fault. My um my manager is always telling me to stop. <laughs> so, yeah, the work's there if you, if you want to do it. And there, there is work life balance if if you need that. Too. Great, thanks so much. And definitely what you mentioned there, Claire, about how difficult it can be to say no to things, especially when you're working on a year-to-year -year kind of contract or even hoping just to get a year contract, that might be a big step in some cases. And is that something that now you're in, well, all in, in tenure permanent positions, it is easier to say no to things and you feel more capable of doing so, or is it still maybe a challenge in some ways that crops up? I think I'm capable of saying no, but I very rarely do. But I don't have that pressure of having to write grants and to apply for money that is absolutely life-changing that I don't have that pressure that I can I can theoretically choose what I want to do I'm just I'm very interested in anything anybody asks me to do and I like to I like to be involved so I mean I my role is you know I've got more of a strategic role now um and and that I mean, I do love being in, as, as the others have said, doing your own research. And I, I'm still doing a little bit of that, but that strategic role is uh, takes you a little bit away, away from that. But that pressure is off and it is um, life-changing. I just have to say that I actually quite oh, like writing, writing grant proposals and things. So they're normally for other people, though, rather than for me. So I guess it's that kind of just, just you know, it's not that bad for everyone. Some people like doing it. So, yeah. <laughs> Thanks a lot. And the final kind of point I had in terms of that kind of transition out of academia and kind of current work that you're, you're doing at the moment in terms of your kind of work-life balance and enjoyment of things was about hybrid working as well. So I know obviously it was possible pre-pandemic, but certainly wasn't as, as common or as supported. And I don't know if, if any of you currently are working, well, I suppose you, you all mentioned to some degree you are. So do you think that's a real benefit, something that you enjoy a lot? You can see the successes stemming from that? So if anyone would like to, to comment on that, I suppose. Well, I'm, I have to be, in, I'm encouraged to be in the office one day a week because our team is growing so quickly. We're going to have to need, it, need a new building, <laughs> but it's great. My my line manager was, uh, um, worked in psychology at Queen's before I joined. And then I my, the psychiatrist I work for, they're to, they know me, they trust me, um, and they're very flexible. Um, there's There's no... There's no pressure on where I should be at any at any one time, as long as you deliver the work. Do you know if you want to mention? Something? Yeah, no worries. So, uh, when I negotiated, so one thing I would say is that when you apply for a job, you you can negotiate what you're going to do, and I would recommend you do that. So, the job that I'm in right now was advertised as a full time job. I negotiated for the four days a week. So, you know, there is that potential to do that with most jobs. You know, I'm not promising it with all cases. But it is worth thinking about, you know, what you want to do in that stage. And then in terms of hybrid working, I tend to work about sort of two days from home. And then two days I could be at any of the National Trust Pop. I cover Northern Ireland and I also do some stuff across the water. So I, I could be, you know, on Copeland Islands or, you know, on the North Coast. Or I could be down at Murloc 
Um, but I plan my timetable, so I try and fit things in. So if I'm going up to the North Coast, I'll see the various people that are up there at the same time. So I quite enjoy that balance. I was just at home in my last job, which was fine. And it took me a little bit of transitioning to go from working the whole time at home to being out again. But I do enjoy seeing people. So, yeah. Thanks, Jade. Because, yeah, I certainly see there are pros and cons of working from home. But I think the key thing, as you mentioned there, is that flexibility if you can get the flexibility and, and ask for that that can really help how you design your your work schedule and, and the time you give to certain tasks and so on so yeah if it's possible certainly it seems like a very beneficial thing to call for and I, suppose I did have one further question in, in this kind of section on transitioning because i thought it might be remiss of me in some ways not to ask about these three very successful females who've worked away from academia and beyond that if there's any specific advice or anything you'd have for maybe PhD students or postdocs, females or women, that you maybe share with them or any kind of guidance of key challenges you faced or anything that might be useful for people to hear? I would say keep fighting. Um, whenever I joined, I was part-time and had um, one child and then, then I went and on have another, another daughter. And um, you're trapped. Uh, you know, being part-time, it was a reasonably paid job at the time. You've nowhere to go. Um, and then that you know it's difficult to start looking for other things if you if you are considering a family and I know there's other people in the postdoctoral forum have talked again about you know trying to get a mortgage and all of those things so please keep fighting um unionize and <laughs> um women at women it's really nice of you really powerful that Ben that you've you're you know acknowledging that it, it is really difficult um for women um and you know just keep fighting because things have to change if i can add to that as well so i think oftentimes uh, i mean caring responsibilities has always been a massive factor in a lot of the decisions that i've made and i think that it, that 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 was 100 more the case for me than it was for my husband even though we work very hard to be uh, to share responsibilities so caring responsibilities whether it's for children or parents or siblings that have different you know is a real thing but also just to kind of say I spent a lot of time looking around being like that feels really gendered or that felt very sexist or that and then kind of berating myself for it and thinking oh you're overreacting you're making a mountain or being told that I was making too much out of something and it's only kind of when you step back and you go there's a lot of we've come a long way but there's an enormous amount of innate sexism um in in uh academia still particularly in different disciplines and so trust yourself if something feels like you are missing out on something or being treated differently because and then your colleagues um this is for any minoritized group really because it's not it's not just women it is you know like women probably have it in some cases better than people from other minoritized groups but um but you know trust yourself and and challenge it but also advice to the you know non-women uh academics as well trust your colleagues when they tell you that something feels gendered or feels wrong I remember asking for a pay rise when I was hired um, and I was, I was basically negotiating salary because I was saying, well, I've been in this institution for 10 years now working already. I know this is my first lectures post, but I've been here for 10 years. I don't think I should start on the bottom 
of the salary scale. Because I was taking a pay cut because I was a research fellow. So I was actually taking a pay cut to become a lecturer. And, um, and they said to me that I wanted to make sure I didn't act like a diva. Because if, if word got out that I behaved that way, it would really, people would be quite resentful about it. But I watched that same colleague put forward a male colleague of the same kind of rank as me, constantly pushing them constantly. And they were going out for drinks together and, you know, and it was extremely gendered. And it, I don't think I would have been spoken to that way if I was a man. And I think, I think it's really important to, for, for us to kind of trust ourselves that that's happening, but also for colleagues around us to trust that that's happening and to, you know, that. I it happened more than once that I was in a meeting and was kind of being and I was challenging something and people were texting me in the meeting saying I agree with that <laughs> and or phoning me after and saying are you okay you were really spoken to very badly in that meeting and I got to the point where I actually said do you know what no thank you for your apology because you watched that and recognized it and you didn't say anything so it's really for that power imbalance someone mentioned you can't say no well, you also can't stand up for yourself in a meeting or stand up to something that you see as discriminatory as easily as others. So um, so I think I'd probably put that a little bit on some of our male colleagues to say, you know, please trust your your colleagues and um and and challenge those things when they when they happen. Thank you so much, Bethany. It's brilliant advice for I suppose everyone, but certainly listening to that my perspective, yeah, it's so key that Neil's certainly in the department I work in, it's unfortunately been an issue in the past that we're not just passive enablers of these kind of things, but as you mentioned, we're the opposite. We stand up against it and, and support the females and those others who certainly face challenges that uh, more privileged people like myself wouldn't do so. So but thank you so much. It's brilliant advice to have that and hopefully across the other kind of career sessions that we're having this month, there'll be another topic to be discussed. Um, because it's something that obviously has been hidden for far too long. So thanks for, for explaining that and talking about it. Um, so I suppose time's run pretty quickly, but the final theme I was hoping to talk about was about collaboration and impact. And I suppose a lot of the things you mentioned already have been about collaboration from your individual work at the moment, who you work with. And I obviously in the social science field, a lot of the time research is obviously with, not necessarily just conducted with people, but actively involves people in the research process as well. And obviously the key thing is that the, the output and the impact of the research is going to be beneficial to the to people that you're trying to or communities you're trying to target and so on. So maybe if we've talked about the collaborative side of things in terms of who you work with, it might be interesting to to focus more on on impact if possible. So obviously working in academia, all of you will have been talked or been shown what impact or how it can be measured either through publications or other ways of communicating knowledge, which you do in the academic research. Um, so I'm quite interested to hear from kind of outside academic perspective now, is research impact or impact in terms of your work in general considered differently? Is it framed in different ways? Um, or how is impact uh, measured more generally? I've really talked about sort of the, the, the mental health strategy and sort of the direct link into policy now that I'm able to, to action. And obviously, because I'm working with clinicians and they're really hungry for um, improving evidence-based practice. And that's sometimes not always... Um, easy to to administer within the workplace whenever they're really really busy so I mean even things like scoping reviews effectiveness reviews um, they find that kind of evidence really beneficial and, and not, not some of the work that I like to do and um, I also have been involved over the last well 
a, lo a long time, but more recently around the last five years is involving people with lived experience. And again, the, the health service isn't very good at that, that, you know, there, there is sort of um, sort of face value, you know, service user consultants or, you know, um, patient groups. But that's not how we in, re in research would consider, uh, you know, true high quality co-production. So I've been in, involving some um, people in co-producing research with, within the trust. So that, that that's really good. And trying to place co-production at the center of everything that we that we do so it's a it's a, it's getting the message through um uh we're, we're starting to work on it but i think we're, we're starting to make it a little bit of a difference so that's been good thanks a lot claire do you I don't know if you have anything to mention yeah, particularly in I, regard to uh, yeah so i guess in terms of I know that if you're within the sort of academic department, it's kind of like focusing on where something published, you know, how's that going to sort of feed back in? What's the, what's the score on it? All of that kind of stuff. Well, when I, so for example, I worked on the climate change risk assessment for the UK and doing the Northern Ireland summary. When we're looking at it with the research focus, then we're looking at things. Has it been published? You know, is it from a peer reviewed publication? We're not looking at the, the score for that and where it's published. We're looking for what the evidence is across the board and is it is it usable? But we also are looking at grey literature and then we're looking at trying to sort of how can we incorporate that lived in experience a bit more? How do we capture some of those sort of like more nuanced place based side as well? And I guess also. You know, it's it's looking at those kind of you set your indicators for how you can see that you've achieved change. So you might set up, for example, a theory of change and you're going, OK, what would the vision be? And then look at what are the indicators that you're progressing along that pathway? So, so it depends on kind of a whole broad different way, depending on the on the work. But um, sometimes, you know, research can be in a different wrapper to how it feeds in. It's more about kind of making sure that it fits that standard. It's comparable and usable as well to sort of feed into that work. Thanks, Jade. And one other thing I was going to mention to you, Jade, because I always find of interest in NGO um, side of things. A lot of the time you communicate knowledge through things like policy briefs or working groups and so on. And that's something personally I'm interested in learning more about of how not just a publication can be the, the be and yeah. end all of the, the research I do, but there's other ways I communicate it. So yeah, it, so this I'm benefiting in multiple kind of approaches. Mm, so there's a few ways. And again, as a sort of postgraduates there there's ways for you to get involved as well whether that's kind of you know there's, there's lots of consultations out but there's often pre-consultation work as well in terms of sort of having the, the government has started to at least dear has started to realize that for some of their work they actually need to not just put the consultation out and tick it's done they actually need to sort of do a bit more co-development so with the recent uh, marine protected areas strategy and uh, which hasn't come out yet and blue carbon strategy which hasn't come out yet but all those sorts of things but there has actually been a bit more of a pulling together and doing co-development on what would what would good look like so that is really important those kind of processes to get involved and I know certainly on the climate side of things that there was a lot of students from Queens that pulled together to have a response to the consultation and to feed in, whether through the Belfast Climate Change Commission and their sort of their youth coalition or, you know, other groups. It is worth sort of getting involved and seeing how you can actually provide some of that information across, because quite often there's a bit of a divide between you know, what happens, and I know it's changing, but slowly, but kind of what happens in university in terms of, you know, PhDs may sit on a shelf, 
and things and how can you get it from being a paper document to actively using that knowledge because it also the way that things are written in papers let's be honest the language is not that easy for everyone else to understand so it's about that translation process to go from academic language into whichever audience you're trying to hit if it's communities it's one thing if it's um sort of mlas and counselors that's another but it's still you almost have to translate it and just include the stuff that they need to know because if you try and share all of your knowledge they're just don't know they'll pick up on one thing and that'll be it so it is that's a key skill as well being able to take your knowledge uh, and either translate it or find someone who you can work with that will read it and go what does that mean? What does that mean? So you can actually test it and see if it's understandable to somebody else and if they actually get the key message that you think you're getting across. So, yeah, it's kind of tearing was, those words back up. Sorry. I was told by uh, someone in the department once, he said it was longer than two pages. I'll not read it. Um, and another thing, uh, we have the Forensic Managed Care Network within our impact centre. And uh, I didn't realise this, but someone told me last week that the average reading age of an adult in the, the criminal justice system is six years old. And for young people, it's nine years old. So think about that whenever you're doing your policy brief, you know, it's, it's important stuff. Thanks so much, Claire. Um, and yeah, it really is so important it's at the core of, of all kind of thoughts about how we communicate research. And as you said, um, and Jade mentioned as well, if it's a full paper, full publication of very theoretical language it's really not going to be picked up or certainly isn't going to be used in any active sense so it's not something that's maybe being ignored but it's maybe something that should have greater focus in academia at the moment and it's it's brilliant to learn from like yourself people who are in, in practice and have more experience of understanding the process and systems of how knowledge from research then goes on to inform decision making and, and policies and so on well thanks so much for that if you have any final tips or advice or anything please feel free to share them I suppose I, I just a really practical thing that I I actually started it because I was doing the the career placement and in the degree I was doing the career placement and I started it with my undergrads but I actually started doing it when I was um leaving a job and I made a table I started looking at the types of jobs I wanted and I looked at the essential criteria um and I made a, a table and tried to populate the table and then um, anywhere where there's blanks, I just actively started to go and look for something that I could do to fill that blank in. Um, and it served two purposes. One, it sh showed me how much, it showed me kind of how to turn my experience into that language in, com in some of the competency-based interviews um, outside of academia, because it's a very different. Applying for jobs outside of academia is extremely different than applying for jobs within academia, um, because it is very competency-based. Like, can you do this thing? give me a story about the time you did this thing you know it's it's very straightforward in a lot of ways um and then just realizing how much of that I did in academic work um and also acknowledging that a lot of a lot of places have no idea what you do as a researcher and the depth of what you do as a researcher and um and they and research is really kind of taken for granted as a as a really basic skill and so it's really important for you to communicate the, the depth of of your skill set and and to apply that into into examples that will make sense to the to the environment that you're applying to 
Um, and I think reading essential criteria of the kind of jobs that you want is, was for me a really helpful way to do that. Um, because the language is like the language is, you, you know what, if you work across disciplines, people are saying the exact same thing. They're just using two different words for it. And often that's the same in sectors. Um, but the other thing I just want to say very quickly is if you're a, I, one thing that I, I genuinely loved working in academia, like the idea of it, <laughs> the, like, the idea of research and just spending all my time reading and critically thinking and then talking to people and translating that into something. I mean, that was so magic to me and I just could have done it my whole life if that's what my job actually had turned out to be. Um, and I really, really loved it. But one thing that I didn't love about it was that I couldn't do that with everything. You know, generalists are not terribly respected in, acad in academia. They kind of want you to be the be all and end all of one thing. And for some people, that's great. They love that. For me, I loved getting into that a little bit with everything. Um, and a job like I have now is so exciting because I get to look at the 22 different investment areas that we have and all the range of different things. And I get to look across the policy and the research and the legislation that's out there and all of those things. And suddenly being a generalist is this really revered thing and somebody that wants to get into the nitty gritty of lots of different things they're they're excited for me to do that and so if you if you find that in academia then looking outwards you know might be something you want to start doing because I hadn't realized how how lacking that was in my life and being able to really get into all of these different things and learning about new things all the time so if that's something you're looking for you know it, that might be something to consider Great, thanks so much, Bethany. And just strangely, a question came in just at the end there about someone who's just finish, finishing up a PhD or into the, the final year um, and thinking of moving or what options might be there. And I don't know, maybe that's relevant in itself, what you're talking about, Bethany, of, of being open to the idea of being a generalist or working on a number of things. Because obviously, from my experience, um, PhD is very much focused on one theme, one topic. So being or expecting a post that might come up that will allow you to translate everything you've picked up on the PhD maybe isn't the most realistic thing. Not to say that this person is thinking that, of course, but that might be some kind of advice, I suppose, that to, to be open to different opportunities that might be within academia, might be outside of it as well, um, and certainly that aren't necessarily entirely tied to the current kind of work you're, you're working on. So I don't know if anyone has any other comments on that kind of predicament of, of still finishing a PhD, but being aware of future work as well, or any just final comments as well about yeah, the transition from academia outwards? I think it's hard when you're in that final stage of PhD and your brain is gone. So as much as I'd like to say, yeah, go out and get a job, I think um, you probably want to look for, if you need the money and you need a job, then I would look for something that won't involve you having to think too much as well because you, you need to focus on just getting that done and remember it doesn't have to be perfect you need to get it complete and then you can move on to the next step if that's okay and that, but I, what I would say is that just echo on Bethany's point there about those transferable skills you know it might be that the job that you've got you're talking about sort of you know it doesn't have to be an academia it could be something else but again look at those those gaps and you of the sort of skills that you might need and not necessarily even at a high level it might be that you know some sort of um working with people and being able to sort of negotiate problems and you know all those kind of um things are really useful 
I know that when, you know, I've been employing people in the past, you know, the, the examples you give in a job interview don't have to be academic or research. They could be from some of the voluntary stuff you're doing. They could be because you're captain of a sports team and you've negotiated through problems. It, you know, we, we like hearing different examples because it shows you've thought about them and thought about how that relates to the issue as well. So, so yeah, that was my point. I'll let someone else speak. I was just going to say, I, th I think there's still that reluctance. I mean, I was at Queen's for 18 and a half years and it was it was really traumatic, me leaving. It's a very, very emotional decision, but I felt I had no choice. And the, we've, the recent people that we, you know, we've, we've interviewed haven't turned up, but, you know, and they're all in the same boat, you know, post PhD, post docs. And I just think, you know, they have a loyalty to an organisation which perhaps doesn't, you know, replicate that. So do be do be brave. You, there is life outside, um, and it can be a, it can be a good and an exciting role. Just to echo that, I like I I have a, a, a my husband actually showed me this text message the other day. It was my last day in academia, and I wrote. He said, "How are you doing?" And my response was, "I feel like someone is surgically removing a massive part of my identity right now, and I don't know how to cope with that." Um, I was totally traumatic. It, like it, it feels silly to call it traumatic, but it was really traumatic leaving. Um, and every single day, I feel grateful that I did that because I actually feel, you know, I feel like I'm in a much better, happier place. Um, and that won't be everyone's experience, but it's it's just to kind of say like I didn't take that decision lightly. So if this is something that feels a little agonizing for you, um. You know, that's I think that's really normal and because we're all quite institutionalized. Any any and I don't mean that in about academia, every institution is like that. So um, you know, you, you really can there is life after academia and it can be quite fulfilling. Like I feel very professionally fulfilled. Thank you so much. I think it's really good positive kind of note to to wrap up what was really optimistic and positive conversation about working within and beyond academia. So uh, I know it's about two already. So thank you so much for your time to Bethany, Jade and Claire and to Alice and Aaron as well for facilitating the conversation. And yeah, thanks again. Take care. Thanks for listening. For more career interviews and panel discussions, have a look at our other episodes at go.qub.ac.uk slash podcast PDC. Bye.